Hey, everybody. This is Brian Zond. Welcome to my sermon podcast. Before we get into the sermon, though, I want to tell you about an online class coming up in November when everything's on fire. This is a class designed to help you navigate the pressure that sometimes comes upon you in the modern age trying to sustain Christian faith. I really think I can help you in that process. And so here's what it's going to be. Monday nights in November, the live classes are from 8 to 9.30 p.m. Central. I'll present for about an hour, and then we'll have 30 minutes of Q&A. But you don't have to participate in the live classroom to uh, be a part of this. You can uh, access the recordings with a donation of any amount. So a donation of any amount gets you into the class. And uh, if you need more information or you're ready to register, go to wolc.com slash fire for the When Everything's on Fire online class in November. My sermon title for Anniversary Sunday uh, isn't actually a sermon title. That isn't really what it is. Instead, it's a prayer that I pray every day, and it's been a guiding vision for almost 20 years. Every day, I pray that we here at Word of Life Church would be an authentic expression of the kingdom of Jesus in the 21st century. I pray that every day. I pray it from my heart. So it's not a sermon title. It's a prayer. It's an aspiration. It's a vision that we say it with me would be an authentic expression of the kingdom of Jesus in the 21st century. Amen. Now, while Perry and I were in Spain and Portugal for the month of October, the only scriptures I had with me, I mean, yes, yeah, I know, I know it's all on your phone, but I'm, I'm still old enough, I'm, I'm old school enough that, that, that I prefer not to, to read it that way. So uh, we're traveling light, you know, we got backpacks, we're traveling light, and uh, the only scriptures I had with me was a paperback copy of the Gospel of John. And that's all I had. I just, I just had one book of the Bible. I had the Gospel of John. And so I just read it over and over and over, kept going through John. Wow, we, a month-long journey into that transcendent fourth gospel that is the Gospel of John. And so it will come as no surprise that my text for today comes from, you guessed it, the Gospel of John. And it comes from the pivotal passage where Jesus is on trial before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. John chapter 18, verse 36. Jesus answered, My kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would fight. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Pilate asked him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? In his 
wonderful little book telling the truth. Frederick Beekner, what a great writer Frederick Beekner was. Frederick Beekner imagines Pontius Pilate with comical anachronisms. Pontius Pilate talks on the telephone. He has a troubled wife who's seen an analyst. He enjoys his evening martinis. And he's got a three-pack-a-day cigarette habit that he's trying to break. And this is one of the best sentences in Frederick Beekner's Telling the Truth. At the deepest level, all hearers of the truth are the same hearer. And when I try to picture him or her, what I picture is the one who is famous for having asked to hear, who took a long drag on his cigarette and through narrowed eyes asked, what is truth? Pontius Pilate. In the Apostles' Creed, we confess that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. In the Apostles' Creed, there are three historical figures that are mentioned. Jesus Christ, the Virgin Mary, and Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate sneaks into the creed like a rogue. We might, you know, we understand, of course, Jesus is going to be there. Of course, Mary's going to be there. What in the world is Pontius Pilate doing in the creed? Well, the answer is that Christianity is not a faith that floats above everything in abstraction. Rather, Christianity is a faith that is firmly rooted in historical events. And Pontius Pilate gives us that historical context. So what do we know about Pontius Pilate? We know a few things. We know that Pontius Pilate came from a plebeian family in Rome who were able to rise to some level of prominence through dogged service in the equestrian legions. Eventually, Pontius Pilate was elevated to the level of procurator, let's say governor. That's what it's like. And in the year 26 AD, the Roman emperor Tiberius appointed Pontius Pilate as the governor of Judea. This was probably not a desirable post. If you were going to be a Roman governor, there was a lot of places you would rather be than there. Judea was unruly. It was very far from the imperial capital of Rome and it was a difficult province to rule. There were continual insurrections, rebellions, riots, and things like that. In the fifth year of his governorship, Early one Friday morning, the day before Passover, Pilate is in Jerusalem. He usually lived, his palace was in Caesarea by the sea, but during Passover, he needs to be there. So early one Friday morning, the day before Passover, the Sanhedrin, which was the religious ruling council that served something like a city council, the Sanhedrin brought to Pilate, got him out of bed, because they had this Galilean Jew that they wanted executed. The Sanhedrin 
under Roman rule, did not have the authority to execute people. That was reserved for the Romans. So they brought this criminal, so they say, to the Roman governor that he might pass sentence upon him and put him to death. Pilate very quickly figures out what this is about. I mean, ultimately, for whatever reason, the Sanhedrin is accusing this Galilean Jew of claiming to be Messiah. Pilate has met these men before. On a regular basis, there were those that would rise up in the Jewish world of the first century and say, I'm the king. I'm the king of the Jews. I'm anointed by God. I'm the one that's going to save you. I'm the one that's going to deliver you. I am the Messiah. And they always got arrested. And they always got brought to the Roman governor. And the Roman governor always put them in their place, which was on a cross. This is not the first time Pilate has encountered these fanatics claiming to be a king. So Pilate, not wanting to waste a lot of time with this, just cuts to the chase. And when Jesus of Nazareth is brought before him, he asks one simple question. Are you the king of the Jews? Because this is what they always claim. I'm the king of the Jews. And that was Rebellion, that was treason, that was insurrection. The king is whom the emperor in Rome says is the king, not some upstart from Galilee or wherever that claims to be a king. So Pontius Pilate says to this Jesus of Nazareth, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus responds, not with a simple yes or no. Jesus responds by saying, my kingdom is not from this world which I think immediately maybe throws Pilate off a little bit. My kingdom, says Jesus to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, my kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my servants would fight. But they're not. Because my kingdom is not from here. And so Pilate's trying to clarify what's going on here. So you are a king. Because Jesus keeps talking about his kingdom. Pilate says, so you are a king. Jesus says, you say I'm a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And if you are of the truth, you will listen to what I have to say. To which Pilate said, what is truth? It's a good question. Fair enough question. What is truth? Well, we Christians confess that ultimate truth is not a proposition, it's not a philosophy, it's not a book, it's a person. What is truth? 
The Christian confession is the truth is a person. The truth is Jesus Christ. The perfect truth of God is not revealed in a book or a philosophy, but in a person. In the word of God made flesh, who is Jesus Christ, the truth of God. What is truth? Jesus is the truth of God. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There's never been a time when God wasn't like Jesus. We haven't always known this truth, this truth about God. But now we do because Jesus has made it known because Jesus is the truth. And the truth of God, who is Jesus Christ, is a king. He's not a king necessarily that everyone would immediately recognize. But he is a king who brings us his kingdom. And his kingdom is the kingdom of God, the kingdom that comes from heaven. But here's the part where we can so easily go astray into catastrophic consequences. The kingdom of Jesus is nothing like the kingdoms of this world. Tell your neighbor, quit watching the game and pay attention. (laughs) The kingdom of Jesus is nothing like the kingdoms of this world. The kingdom of Jesus is not some new and improved version of Babylon with its fixation on power, political power, military power, economic power. The kingdom of Jesus is nothing like that. Pilate says, so you're a king then. Jesus says, My kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would fight. They're not fighting. My kingdom is not from here. So what does Jesus mean when he says it's not from here? He means his kingdom is not from the fallen, corrupt, power-obsessed world of conventional power and politics. It just doesn't come from there. The kingdom of Jesus does not arrive in the world through the same means and methods as, say, the kingdom of Babylon or Egypt or Persia or Greece or Rome or Russia or Spain or Britain or America. It does not come from there. It doesn't come that way. It doesn't come down that road. It comes from the heavens and it is an entirely different kind of kingdom. The kingdom of Jesus does not come into the world through political power. Lord, I pray that by the Holy Spirit, people would hear this. I pray that it would seep in and get a hold of them. The kingdom of Jesus does not come into the world through political power. If we only had political power, we could, the kingdom of Jesus does not come into the world through political party. Yeah, but if we could just get control of the house, if we could get control of the Senate, if we could just get, get our person in the, in the white horse, 
The kingdom of Jesus does not come into the world by political power. For God so loved the world that he did not send a politician. If we're going to be an authentic expression of the kingdom of Jesus, that's our vision, that's our hope, that's our desire. If we're going to be an authentic expression of the kingdom of Jesus in the 21st century, we have to give up any ambition of making this happen through political power. The moment we say, well, we're going to accomplish the will of God through political means, through you know, passing our versions of laws and through getting our people in power, the moment... The moment we say we will accomplish the will of God through political power, it's no longer the kingdom of Jesus. It's just a political wolf in sheep's clothing. That's all it is. That's all it is. Jesus says, my kingdom is not from this world. That's what he says to Pontius Pilate. My kingdom is not from this world. Jesus Christ, the Pontius Pilate. He means, Pilate, my kingdom. Yes, I'm a king and there is a kingdom, but it's nothing like what you know about. It's nothing like what you got in Rome. It's nothing like its predecessor in Greece. It's nothing like those. My kingdom does not come from this system. My, my kingdom does not come from conquest, from swords, from politics from coercion. My kingdom is not from this world. That's what Jesus says. Our Lord. But once we convince ourselves that Jesus needs us to have political power so that we can, you know, do good. So that we can bring about his will. Surely Jesus wants his will done and we, we just need some political power to make Jesus' will come. The moment we convince ourselves that Jesus wants us and needs us to have political power to bring about his purposes, we are already well prepared to make Caiaphas level compromises. Caiaphas, the high priest, ruler of the Sanhedrin, he also, on that same day, at that same moment, stands before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. And at the end of a give and take back and forth between the men, finally Caiaphas says to Pilate, we have no king but Caesar. Jesus says, my kingdom is not from this world. But once we start playing in that political realm, and justifying it by we need this kind of power to bring about good, we are already well prepared to start saying, you know, really, we have no king but Caesar. We disguise it in the altruistic robes of religion and Christianity and things like that, but we too just want what everybody else, we want conventional Caesar-like power. Christendom, or imperial Christianity, or Christian nationalism, whatever term you want to use, that is trying to enforce the reign of Christ through the power of the state, 
does not establish the kingdom of Christ. It only produces apostasy among Christians. That's all it does. It does not establish the rule of Christ. It only creates apostasy among Christians. The way of Jesus is the way of the cross, not the way of the sword, which is political power. Because behind all political aspiration is the power of the sword. Jesus rejected the sword, that is political power, in the wilderness at the beginning of his ministry. This is what lies behind that third temptation. That if Jesus will just compromise and bow down a little bit to the devil... He would be given political power over the nations of the world. And Jesus said, get behind me. I serve the Lord and him only. I will not serve the devil even for a good cause. Jesus rejected the temptation of seizing political power at the beginning of his ministry in the garden. And he rejected it at the end of his ministry in in the garden of Gethsemane. Peter was ready to take up the sword. He was already swinging the sword. He was already turning to the sword to bring about what he believed was the will of God concerning Jesus. And Jesus says, stop it. No more of this. Put up your sword. When they came for him in the garden, did they know? When they came for him in the garden, did they know? Did they know he was the son of God? Did they know that he was Lord? Did they hear when he told Peter, Peter, put up your sword? Do we hear Jesus when he says to the church, put up your sword? If word of life church is to be an authentic expression of the kingdom of Jesus in the 21st century, we must make some crucial choices. Crucial. Everybody say crucial. Crucial. What does that word mean? Somebody says, oh, I mean super duper important. Crucial. Cruxel. It's out of the French, out of the Latin. Cruxel. Crucial. It literally means cross Formed, cruciform. When you use the word crucial, you're actually saying cruciform. If Word of Life Church is going to be an authentic expression of the kingdom of Jesus in the 21st century, we must make some cruciform decisions, some cross-form decisions, some crucial decisions. We must choose the way of love over hate. We must choose the way of love over hate. Listen, I hear the way some Christians talk about their political enemies and it's hate. It's hate. It's hate. They can pretend that it's not, but that only makes it worse. I hear the way some Christians, not here, the way some Christians talk about their political enemies and it's hate, but it's not so here. It won't be that way here. We're not like that. We're a shelter from the storm. I mean, who needs on Sunday morning to come and get yet another dose of culture wars? This is not the trench warfare of the culture wars here at Word of Life Church on Sunday morning. This is a shelter from the storm. 
we will make the crucial Christ-informed, cross-informed, cross-formed, cruciformed decision to choose love over hate. We must choose the way of grace over just desserts. Some people are just obsessed with people getting what they deserve. I'm afraid somebody's going to get something they don't deserve. Well, you're never going to understand the kingdom of God. Jesus says the kingdom of God is like people that work one hour getting a full day's wages because that's what they need. And somebody says, well, that's not fair. Jesus, who said anything about fair? I'm talking about grace. I'm talking about grace. We have to choose the way of grace over the way of just desserts. If somebody gets something good that they didn't deserve, a Christian says, praise God, that's the kingdom of Jesus right there. That's what the kingdom of Jesus is like. It's like grace. If we're going to be an authentic expression of the kingdom of Jesus in the 21st century, we must make a crucial decision. We must choose the way of forgiveness over retaliation. The way of radical forgiveness literally, literally, literally is the way of cross. When Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, take up your cross and do what I do with the cross. Take up your cross and do what I do. It means we are not going to retaliate. We're not. That's what Jesus calls us to. Jesus takes up his cross and he doesn't fight against evil men. Rather, he bears their sins and forgives them all. And Jesus says, now don't just stand on the sideline and applaud me for what I'm doing. You take up your cross and imitate me. Follow me. Do it like that. We must choose the way of peace over war. This is the Jesus way. Nobody said it was easy. You said, but that doesn't sound easy. Who said anything about easy? Jesus said, the way is narrow and it's hard, but it's possible and it leads to life. We must choose the way of peace over war. It's the Jesus way. And by the way, there is no way to peace. Peace is the way. I mean, you just say, okay, no, I... There is no way to peace. It's like peace is the way. I will walk in peace as I follow the lamb. We must choose the way of witness over coercion. We are to be simply a city set upon a hill that the rest of the world looks at and aspires to belong to. We're not charging down that hill trying to take over by force. We are a city set on a hill that others can look at and aspire to belong to. We are not a political movement that others will end up fearing and loathing. If the world cannot see in the church the hope of a better way and aspire to it, we have no business of trying to force our way upon the world. You understand what I'm saying? We attract people into the kingdom of Christ by simply living a life that others find aspiration. They go, I would like a life like that. I would like that. And then they aspire to, and if they look at us and they are not inspired to be what we are, we have no business of trying to force them to be what we are. 
Because that's the kingdom of the world and that's not the kingdom of Jesus. So I got good news. We can stop trying to change the world. Ha! What a relief. Because that just sounded like a whole lot of work. Change the world. It's not our job. It's not our job. It's not our job to change the world. Jesus is the changer of the world. Jesus is the savior of the world. Jesus is the redeemer of the world. God sent his son in the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Our only task is to be that part of the world already changed by Jesus. You're, are you with me? Our job is not to, because the moment we think, well, I got to change the world, the temptation will swiftly become too great to reach for the most coercive means in the quickest way. And we reach for the sword and we're going to bring about change that way. And it doesn't change the world at all. It just changes who's ruling the world. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Fooled again. So... We don't have to change the world. We still, our calling is simply to be that part of the world already changed by Jesus. And if that somehow in fact does change the world, well then amen, so be it. But we're not going for that direct means of coercion. Another way to say it is this, to be an authentic expression of the kingdom of Jesus in the 21st century, we have to be like Jesus. At least, at least a little bit, a little bit. If we're going to be an authentic expression of the kingdom of Jesus, we have to be a little bit like Jesus, aspiring to that, trying to be that. And this begins by participating in Jesus' death so that we can participate in his life. And that's what baptism is about. Baptism is a sacramental participation in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's the entry point into the church, the church that is called to be an authentic expression of the kingdom of Jesus. Amen. Stand up with me. Whoo. That's what you get when I haven't preached for a month. And we have some people, 10 or 11 people are going to be baptized today. And so those of you that are to be baptized, would you come and stand right here in front of the communion table down front? And as they come, would you applaud them? Would you encourage them? Would you let them know we're excited and happy that they are entering into the church through the waters of baptism? Amen. Oh, this is fantastic. All right, what we're going to do is we're first going to make a confession together. It is the Apostles' Creed. Pontius Pilate will show up. But this is, a, this is what Christians for 2,000 years have confessed before their baptism. Before they were baptized, this flies coming after me. <laughs> Beelzebub. Uh, this is what Christians would confess right before their baptism. And so since Christianity is not something we get to make up, it's an inherited faith, we receive it, we are simply doing what 
our forebears were doing 2,000 years ago. So we're going to confess the Apostles' Creed, and then we're going to confess our sins and receive the Lord's pardon. And then you'll be first in line right here for communion, and we'll take you off to get ready for, for baptism. We'll worship a little bit here, receive communion, and then we're going to celebrate your baptism. So would you please now, church, everybody, confess with me the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now join with me in confessing our sins. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And God is gracious to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy. So in the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. And this is the table not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come, because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. Amen.